Hello, and welcome to the Golf War Podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I am Richard Ingram. The world is a complicated and rather daunting place. To make your way through the maze of life, you'll have to be able to think critically, to work as a team, to design, to build, to be able to read and write, to ask the right questions and find the right answers. You must also be able to present yourself and what you know to others. This is the case if you're a scientist, a management consultant, a farmer, a pilot, or a nurse. My guest today is Bob Lentz, and he'll be speaking to me about a method of teaching that promises all of the above and more. Project-based learning, or PBL, is, according to the organization PBL Works, of which Bob happens to be CEO, is a teaching method in which students learn by actively engaging in real-world and personally meaningful projects. In PBL, Students work on a project over a period of time that engages them in solving a real problem or answering a complex question. They then demonstrate their knowledge and skills, presenting their project to a real audience, or by developing a real product. As a result of this, students develop deep content knowledge, as well as critical thinking, collaboration, creativity, and communication skills. Bob is recognized across the pond as a leader in high school redesign, project-based learning, 21st Century Skills Education and Performance Assessment. The William and Flora Hewlett Foundation has recognised Bob as a senior deeper learning fellow. He's the author of Transforming Schools Using Project-Based Learning, Performance Assessment and Common Core Standards. Bob Lentz, welcome to Goal 4. My pleasure. Great to be with you, Richard. Brilliant to have you on. Thank you. First and foremost, I think we better ask the the obvious question, what is project-based learning? So first and foremost, project-based learning always has learning goals at the center, that project-based learning is actually about learning key knowledge and skills in the academic disciplines, um, being able to apply and demonstrate um, the understanding of those that key knowledge and also learning what we call success skills, others call deeper learning outcomes, 21st century skills, soft skills, uh, things like collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, uh, problem solving. And I think even more important, um, and there, or at least equally important, is the goal or the outcome of having a sense of agency that learners get from doing project-based learning, that they can tackle problems in their lives, in their local community, in our, in our world. And our gold standard says when you have that centered on the learning goals, there's sustained inquiry, there's authenticity, it's relevant. Um, students have voice and choice. They create a public product, they share it publicly. It's, it's not just something, the teacher's not the only audience. That's project-based learning. And so we always ask people to say, to take a look and say what, the, what they might take as a project. And it might have some of those elements, but in um, high quality project-based learning, all, all of those elements are, are evident. Yeah, exactly. So. I was going to ask, many people listening will have done school projects, perhaps at the end of a learning syllabus or tacked on to the end of a lesson, and the teacher will say, right, now it's time for the project. Now, you're saying PBL is different to that. It's not, it's right. not learning about something and then doing a project based on it. The project is the learning. Correct. We, um, we say it's the difference between having project-based learning be the main course or projects which are often like dessert. And so they're kind of fun, they're sweet, 
but there's not a, the, the same level of learning that goes on when you have it as your main course. Now you might learn some things before you actually produce what you're going to do, but it's not an add-on at the end. Um, and it happens during the school time. Uh, many people do projects where they, uh, teachers assign projects. Oh, now we're going to do the project and here's your project. Go home and work on it with your, with your parents. Um, I call those parent projects. Um, <laughs> you can always know whose uh, parents are in design um, or construction when, when you do model projects. <laughs> I'm sure they're popular with some at home, but not others. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I see, I see exactly what you mean. So they, they take up the school time, they're done in lessons, and the whole purpose of being there is to do that project and to learn learning outcomes through doing the project. It sounds, exactly. it sounds totally common sense. Do you have one or two examples of it in action? Um, what kind of projects are we talking about here? Sure. I'll give you a couple of examples and, and folks can actually go to our website and they can watch, a, watch the videos. Of, they sort of capture it. The first one I can share with you is called the Tiny House Project. It was done in a um, a third grade classroom in a, a school in Northern California, where the majority of the students are immigrants. Um, in this case, mostly from uh, Latin America, and but some from Southeast Asia as well. Um, and many of the students are, I say, more than half are English learners. Um, so English isn't their first language or their home language. And um, this is a really great project. The students were put in the role of designers of tiny houses. And they had were given a client who they needed to interview and to um, get their preferences and what they were looking for in their tiny house. The students had a visit from an architect who explained how floor plans and models are created. They got to see real real plans, physical plans, and architect talked to them about what their what their work was. And then they started learning the math that goes with the, uh, the geometry, uh, figuring out area. And they did reading uh, in science and English um, language arts class on from NASA about how they designed small spaces for astronauts. They're doing all the academic learning in this context. And then eventually in their team, they came up with their first prototype, watch the video, they bring in somebody to give them critique. And they one of the other teachers in the school critiques the each of the uh, students' projects they present it, and they get some feedback. They go back and redesign. And then finally, they build actual renderings of the um, their tiny house and present it to their um, their client. And uh, it's it's just it, you know these are the type of projects where kids are deeply engaged in some really complex academic you know learning how to do area and perimeter, um, but also in design and creativity and and teamwork and and so the tiny house project for the elementary grades is one of my favorites. In the um, secondary level, we have a project that's highlighted called the water quality project. It, this was in a, a school in, in New York City, um, predominantly students of, of, of color and who are, come from family backgrounds of, of lower socioeconomic um, means. But the project is as rigorous as anything you'll see in any school anywhere. The students are given the read about the 
the challenges that are happening in Detroit um, or outside of Detroit and Flint, Michigan, where the water was contaminated by lead. Flint, Michigan is predominantly an African-American um, community in Michigan. Um, and so it became an issue around social and environmental justice. But the students, this was a chemistry class. So the students were actually posed with the challenge of creating solutions to decontaminate, to contaminate the water. Well, can I, yeah, if I can just jump in there, that's the, the key to this, isn't it? You're learning what you would be learning in your quote unquote academic subjects. You're learning, you mentioned maths earlier. Uh, you're learning the chemistry in this project. You're learning the, the reading and the writing skills, but it's contextualized in a real problem. Correct. And, exactly. you're, and you can see how everything fits together. So you don't have your math class. And then 50 minutes later, you have your English class and you're talking about something completely different. And then you have your chemistry class. It's all intertwined in this one project. And you're learning all the academic things that are necessary, but it's all being, it, it all makes sense to learn them. You know, you don't have the question, Miss, what is this for? You know, which is the classic question in a maths class. Oh, right. Because exactly. you're, that's what you're doing it. And, and the second point there, you said you're, you're focusing on real world problems such as this, this water pollution. Is it the case that, that we're not giving, you know, we're not giving kids the, the respect they deserve in terms of problem solving? We can actually give them real problems to solve and they might come up with genuine solutions. In, exactly. In life. And that's what we see here in this project where the students are coming up with their own experiments, their own solutions, and, then, and working. And they did have the mask. They had the statistics as well. And they worked with college students and other advanced math and science students to help, you know, critique their work. And they actually they they um, submitted um, scientific um, journal articles for publication based on what their findings were. That was the standard by which they were working to was sort of the academic standard. They were, as you're saying, they were learning the math, their their chemistry, and nonfiction writing. Now. In this case, it, the, I think it is all contained in this one class. So as you were saying, like sometimes you have an inter interdisciplinary project where multiple teachers are sharing the same question in the context and they're sharing the responsibility. Um, and so it really makes total sense for the kids. Other times it's all self-contained, but the teachers are still doing interdisciplinary work. So in this case, like the students still had another math class. So in some ways they're getting double the math because they're getting but they don't even, they, in some ways, they don't even realize it because it's, a, you know, it's kind of like having, I always talk about it as like eating your Brussels sprouts cooked in bacon as, as opposed to straight up. I was up. just about to say, it's like, <laughs> it's like swallowing the maths pill in a jam sandwich, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. it's being snuck in there. It's brilliant. And yeah, I guess in terms of, you know, writing journal standard articles, that's great for the, the future of the student who's going on to work in the real world, because this is all about the real world. Um, it's good for the student who's going to be working in the real world, but it's good for societies, right, as well. It's not just right. good for that one student. It's good for society as a whole. And I want to bring up a phrase that I've heard you use before. It's great for now and later. Can you just explain what that means in that context? Sure. So when, you know, in order for great project-based learning to happen, we need teachers to facilitate it. And I know right now I'm, I'm here talking to you in the UK and teachers are preparing to go on strike um, because of the conditions. Um, in the United States, we have a huge teacher shortage. And so if you're going to convince teachers that 
this is a great thing for kids. You also have to answer like, why is it good for you as a teacher? Because often what we talk about with project-based learning or any changes and often in schools that are related to what students are going to do next. Oh, we need to do this because we need to prepare students for college and career success. But for the teachers who are doing that work, they don't get to see that. So that's just like, all right, I think I'm hoping that what I'm doing now is going to prepare kids. That's the later. And we know, you know, we have evidence um, and we have some research briefs on our our website that will show like that. That's actually evidence that shows that that's actually true. Students who learn in a deeper learning or project-based way are more likely to go to college, more likely to graduate from college. Um, students in the United States who were in career academies doing project-based learning and the career themes are getting paid more and more likely to be employed. But that's far off. That doesn't connect to you as a teacher. The now is like, we all got, I don't know about you, but when I got into teaching, I wanted to make a difference for kids and I wanted to spark some joy and, and some enthusiasm for learning, especially in, the, in history and government, which I studied. Most of the time in teaching, if you're teaching in a traditional way, you just see it like a, it's just a blank slate. I mean, and it's like pulling teeth to get kids engaged. With project-based learning, the now is like you actually get to do what you got into teaching. You see kids get excited. You're, you know, you're feeling, you make work public. That's as much stress on the teacher as it is on the student. But when the students present their learning and they're so excited and the parents are excited, that's a joyful moment that most teachers, if they're not doing project-based learning, they don't get to experience. And so I always say like project-based learning is as good for teachers as it is for kids. Yeah. Um, but that's so important, as you say, at the moment with all the issues in, in teacher number, teacher satisfaction as well. So you were a teacher before, you're now the CEO of PBL Works. And we'll put the link in the show notes to the to the website and to some of the the papers you were just talking about, the, the evidence. This is an organization dedicated to the promotion of BBL that supported nearly 200,000 teachers in over 5,000 schools. I'm interested what first got you into this. Was it your own experience at school? Something further down the line? Well, I didn't realize it. It wasn't until actually I took the position at the Buck Institute for Education and PBL Works in um, 2015, and I was reflecting, it's like, oh, I've been doing project-based learning since I was um, 12 <laughs> years old. Because I had, a, I had an amazing fifth grade teacher, Mr. Cooper, and we did projects. And I still have my poetry book that I wrote all the poems and I created the book and I illustrated it. And we did, we had a poetry reading and everybody came and saw it. And, and, and as it turns out, then when I became a teacher... It was actually one of the first projects I did. I didn't even know I was doing project-based learning at the time, but I knew I wanted to engage the kids. And, and I was teaching in the um, middle grades in the United States, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So I had seventh graders. So I, I did the poetry project. They made their own books. We had a poetry reading. We invited local poets from our community to come in and listen as well as the parents. And then I moved to a high, high school where project-based learning was just beginning. And I saw some projects that students were doing and it was truly like project-based learning and there was design, it was all very more formal. And the work that the students were doing was just phenomenal. Their ownership of, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, I wanted to 
get kids excited about history and government. And I saw the kids, you know, 18 year olds really excited about, um, you, you know, United States history. And I said, I went to the person who was running and I said, I want my, I want that. That's what I want. Um, and so I, I actually started doing training and started my own career academy with some colleagues at our school. We ended up taking the school and PBL really transformed it from, we went from a school that was struggling for enrollment to a school that was over enrolled. And in 1999, we were named one of 13 of um, new American high schools in the United States. We had to go to the White House um, and we were featured in U.S. News and World Report. And so that sort of got, you know, I started in the classroom and I started to see the power of it. One of the things that happened when I was there is we had we had we were doing such good work. We got a lot of attention. And so people came to visit and often folks who had came with, with students from challenging um, situations in communities, they would say, oh, this is really great, but it wouldn't work for my students. And that usually meant black or brown students or poor rural students, native students. Um, and frankly, I didn't believe it. So we, I started a whole network of schools, uh, high schools, redesigned high schools in San Francisco area that were using the same principles we used at the school I was at in Marin County but in San Francisco and Oakland with students like 95% of our students are black and brown. They're about 90 or first in their family go to college. And we were doing the same projects that we did. We did a poetry project with the kids in these schools and got even better results. So that's, I'm, you know, it's sort of like the Buck Institute for Education and PBO Works is, is sort of the culmination of, of everything in my career to try to, to make his work so as many kids as possible yeah. in the world can experience project-based learning because it's transformative. Well, that's, um, that's something I wanted to ask about. You often hear one of the arguments against project-based learning being that it can be expensive to run or you need a lot of kit. Now, that's not quite true, is it? No. I mean, and one of our premises is and when we were talking before we started the podcast, you were mentioning like, well, this is just something that could happen at any school and it's, you can just get started. And that's what we believe. And we promote like two projects a year. You know, if every student had two projects a year, really gold standard projects from the time they went into, into elementary school and the time they came out of secondary school, that'd be, you know, approximately 26 high quality project experiences. You can get, you know, that's not changing the whole school system, but it's changing the experiences for the, the young people. And that's a floor. We, you might have more, but we, were, we think that it's doable. And in that zone of proximate development for most teachers, most schools, most systems to align themselves so that kids can have these experiences at least twice a year. So the schools can, they can align themselves to it gradually. That's quite an interesting take on it because you often hear in debates about PBL, people saying about not doing it at all or just doing PBL. But do you think a good way for schools to at least start to do it is, as you say, doing one or two projects a year, three projects a year, maybe? Yeah, two. I mean, we say two. We have one yeah. in the first semester, one in the second. That it, those experiences, especially if they're growing those the, in complexity and authenticity, will make a huge difference in it. In and that is actually what kids and teachers are going to remember, mm. not all the other stuff that goes in between. I suppose um, it does tie in the stuff that goes in between, though. 
if it's done well, I suppose. It should be. I mean, it. my, my friend Ron Berger talked about like a, a trip his parents took across Europe when they retired and they went to 14 countries in 14 days or something like that. And um, they got home and they got an argument because they couldn't remember which country was which. He said, I just wish my parents would have stopped for, you know, say a week and in one country like Rome and experience the the uh, the language and the culture and the food and the music. And the and, but it, we think of that in school because we think we have to cover everything, but we actually never get off the train. And so project based learning, if you think about it this way, is a way to stop and go deep and learn. And then, you can, you know, maybe it all ties together or maybe it doesn't. It's still about academics, but maybe you're getting back on the, the train. But if you're if you're a traveler on that trip and, you know, you get a couple deep dives, it keeps your interest in between the, the, the time. I, um, I just don't think we have enough reasons for kids to actually get engage their minds in our schools so that they're finding joy and, and figuring out who they are and who they want to be. I do think that when people think about PBL or PBL schools, it's just too daunting to think like, I'm going to go from no project-based learning to a whole completely redesigned school where project-based learning is all students do. It's just, since it's going to be happening very rarely, there's going to be innovators and that are going to set those up as examples. And those are good examples for us to think about and learn from. But for the majority of schools, if we want to see changes happen, we got to start now, like right now. And um, project-based learning is a, anyone can do it. That's one of, I think one of our gifts to the world at the PBO Works is we've developed the, we've sort of uncracked the code, if you will, um, and opened it up for teachers all over the world to say, here's how you can create these experiences. Here's examples. Here's training if you want it. And uh, really, anyone can do this. Yeah, well, you already mentioned how it can be so useful in wealthy areas, in poorer areas, with with children from perhaps poorer socioeconomic backgrounds. This podcast is primarily about looking at how marginalized learners, marginalized children can have more of a chance at a decent education. Uh, we've spoken slightly about poverty. Another marginalizing issue is when children have developmental difficulties or disabilities. I'm interested, particularly in my work, how PBL can fit into that context. It seems to me it's a perfect opportunity to get different children with lots of different abilities in the classroom to come together and work together towards a final project. Oh, most definitely. In the Envision schools that I um, co-founded and led for about 20 years, 15 years, we had far out, outside the average of, of students with special needs. In the United States, if you you're, have a special need, if you have an um, individual education program, an IEP. Mm -hmm. um, and so we had close to, and sometimes, you know, between 15 to 20% of the students with IEPs. And in a traditional United States high school, you might have about seven or eight percent, so more than double. Um, and one of the reasons is because we had such great results, and you know, and parents, the word got out. Project-based learning is a great way to integrate 
and motivate students who traditionally haven't had success in school because of what of their of all the different challenges we've talked about, but especially with because of learning challenges. And um, we've just seen really great results for students with special needs in in project based learning schools. And I and I don't I I think it should be mandatory <laughs> for for students with learning differences to have the opportunity. Um, it's just not it, it's, frankly it's not fair. Um, because many of the their talents lie in the aspects of project-based learning that um, allow them to demonstrate their creativity and their, or maybe their verbal skills, and because of the presentations, Just or their to, creative minds that think of different solutions that, you know, us linear uh, people would just miss. That's just it, isn't it? You can have, if you're working in a group of four or five or six, everyone in that group. I mean, IEP or or not, will have different skills and different strengths. And that is just like being in an office later in life. How useful is it then that those children, A, get to get to hone those skills, whatever they're they're best at, be it presenting or or doing the the maths for a project or or the creative writing or the design? And how important is it that they can take that into their their careers later? Because that seems massive. I, I think that's you, you hit it spot on. Um, it's one of the things though, that I, I do think like in our professional learning and support for teachers is that you have to do this anyway, but especially if you're going to have a very diverse classroom, the collaboration skills, the, the spreading of the work and making sure you're hitting kids' strengths. Teachers have to be very actively involved in that. And this is where students, this is the learning. This is how they learn so that when they get into these other places later in life, they're ready to do it because they just weren't thrown in a group and without a, uh, without a lot of support. Um, otherwise, group projects can seem very daunting and not a pleasurable experience for students, especially students who have been traditionally good at school and are very motivated by the marks um, that they're going to get. And if they're not, if it's not well supported, they can just take over the project. Um, because they want to get the good grade. So this is where the teaching actually is really important. And the payoff is the project will be successful, like the now and later. The students will be engaged. You'll have less, you know, when you tackle it, less discipline issues, if you will. And then you're preparing them later for real-life skills that they're going to need. But I, I, I do think it's really important that teachers think about all the different skills that students are going to need and then think about how they're going to train them and teach them how to do that in the context of the project. Uh, it's not uh, these skills, you know, over time, you can do it by learning by success and failure and trial and error. But teachers can actually level that road out a lot if they're intervening and setting that, that community up. I'm sure. So we've spoken about teacher training. It sounds like everyone should be doing this. It's it's one of those things where you look at oh, the education, yeah. <laughs> you look at the education system and think, why isn't this the norm? You know what's going on? This 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 can be so beneficial for so many different students for for so many different reasons. In your in your view, what needs to happen to make this the norm in schools? And not necessarily the norm as in it happens all day every day in the school calendar, but the norm being, as you said, maybe at least sort of two projects a year within the school to tie everything together. You've spoken about teacher training. What what else needs to happen? Well, the places where we've seen project-based learning, you know, thrive and 
and sustain, you know, it's not, won't be surprising, Richard. It usually has to do with leadership and creating a shared vision about what's possible for students. Often the communities are building learner profiles that really put out the skills and knowledge that they're, I mean, their, their kids will have when they graduate um, and, and, and move out to as adults in the community. The policies are, you know, are pretty important. I mean, if you really want to see things change, we have school districts that have actually instituted that in the United States as a policy, an expectation in their education policy book that students will have two projects a year. So now that just trickles down and then the, the, the school personnel need to figure that out. Often, I, you know, people say, well, it's, you know, you're going to need professional learning um, support. People often say, well, that's very expensive. But when you, you know, like we've done some projects where we've factored it on a per student basis, like a whole school district that works with us to from the leadership of the district to the school leaders, to the teachers um, and sustained over time. And we're talking, you know, maybe $15 a student. Mm-hmm. And I would tell them that's, that's less than a consumable workbook um, that gets used once and then tossed in the recycle bin. But teacher training and building capacity for teachers, that'll last you decades. So it's a really great return on investment um, for, for school systems to think about. But uh, teachers need support. They need support and learning. They're going to need the conditions to be in place where they, you know, at least there's alignment of what's being asked of them from the school leadership so that they're not in conflict with doing project-based learning. And then ideally, they have some extended time, more collaboration time. And assessing a student project takes way more time than a multiple choice test. So I always say to school and system leaders, where are you going to find the time so that teachers can actually give the kids the deep, rich feedback that they that they want? But, you know, despite those obstacles, there's, as you mentioned at the beginning, we have hundreds of thousands of teachers across the United States and across the world who are endeavoring to create project-based learning experiences for their students every day. And so if they can do it, so can the rest of us. <laughs> It's great to hear. Steps in the right direction, That's I'm right. sure. Um, listen, Bob Lenz, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really interesting. Oh, well, well thank you, Richard. And, and uh, it was such a pleasure to talk project-based learning here in, in, uh, in the UK. And um, I'm, I'm actually over here exploring how we might work deeper in the UK and other um, countries around the world. You'll, you'll be hearing more from me. That was Bob Lentz, and my thanks to him for joining me today. And thank you for listening. If you want to find out more about Bob's work, or about PBL in general, do click on the links in the show notes for this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Golf 4. If you did, then why not share it with your friends? You can also subscribe and listen to a new episode every Wednesday. See you next week.